0: People were rising up. They not only wanted something to eat, but they didn't want to participate right. in a system. People had to be forced into it. It was like they were the square pegs, and the capitalists had the round hole. It didn't fit. People don't fit <laughs> in this system. We still don't fit. It's 500 years later. Mm-hmm. Hello. Hello, hello. And welcome back once again to the Book on Fire. We are sitting here in the recording studio, which is the couch, uh, surrounded by invasive ladybugs, which we've just been contemplating. The frogs that crawl out of the woods are partying in the pond outside the house.
1: Yeah, they're back after the last freeze.
0: We've had coffee in the hopes that it'll help us power through this very long and very involved and very entangled chapter of Caliban and the Witch that we're about to address.
1: and also is, give us the fortitude to continue discussing all of the difficult things that we have to discuss here.
0: Yeah, there's really so much. There's really so much in here. When I got to the end of this chapter, I was reminded of, of really how many threads the book is pulling in. And this chapter has kind of... All of them <laughs> almost <laughs> make an appearance. Uh, so many. We're talking about chapter two. It's called the accumulation of labor and the degradation of women constructing difference in quotes in the quote transition to capitalism. So, yeah, the ch- name of the chapter alone is kind of a mouthful just to go back and give a little recap about where we left off. Chapter one was setting us up for basically the birth of capitalism out of the collapse of feudalism. And last time we got a look into the feudal way of life and uh, talked about the different divisions in feudal society and really focusing on the peasantry and on the serfs. One of the things that's really noteworthy about this book is that Federici is one of the thinkers... Who really wants us to understand that there were positive aspects about feudalism and that the quality of life of your average peasant serf might have been better than what we were taught to think it is, you know, by mainstream history public school that views the departure from feudalism as just, you know, a great leap of progress into a much better form of life. The peasants had land. It didn't belong to them, but they had abundant access to land that they could grow food. They had access to the commons where they could fish, gather firewood, graze animals, where they had their festivals and communal gatherings. And importantly for one of the themes of this book, it was a time in which the divisions between men and women, the differences between men and women were not pronounced. Mm-hmm. As far as their social roles, economic roles, and status, mm-hmm. you know, uh, there were definitely differences, right? There was still patriarchy in a sense, and men still had more status. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we talked about this last time. When viewed through the lens of what would come after, it was a time of much less differentiation. And a lot of the story that we're going to talk about on this episode, actually, we might have to break this one into two because there's so much to talk about in this chapter. We'll see. Um, is about, you know, the construction of those differences, you know, so that's like right in the subtitle, constructing difference in the transition to capitalism. Because really, I've been thinking about this a lot as we've gotten deeper into this book, this book, it really demonstrates and painstakingly shows for us how all of life had to be remade for capitalism to be born. It wasn't just... A new economic system where like money became more predominant and wage labor, yeah, that happened. But even for that to happen, so much of life had to be remade and not just the everyday life as far as what a typical day would look like, but also all of our relations, our relation to the non-human world and our relations to ourselves, even like what you think a person is and is for. All of that got remade in this period and there was so much resistance to this restructuring of humanity life work social relations that this transition into capitalism the birth of capitalism was really brutal really horrible really violent right
1: i think also it's important when we say that to recognize that if you're not combining as many threads as Federici is, then it's easy to have a sort of reductionist view of this time period and, and this transition. Yeah. And that's something that we see a lot with some feminist narratives of this period that are not taking into account how people besides women were affected by this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you see some feminist versions of elements of this story from the witch hunts to the medical transitions that were happening and the um, transfer of power within medicine is what, I, what I'm referring to, actually. Um. Yeah. Uh, when you see some versions of that, it's so specifically discussing the impact on women and how those of us who who identify as women right now are carrying that within our genes, the intergenerational trauma of the war on us. Yeah. And I think that while part of that is true, it is denying the impact on the whole society. And we'll talk about this more when we get into the actual witch trial part. Yeah. But... This was a remaking of society at every level that impacted people of all genders mm-hmm. and all types of work status and basically remade life in this way that was really destructive just to vitality of community and to the collective society.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh and so we'll talk more about that but I think that it's important to recognize that Federici is doing something important as a feminist by even though she is writing you said this earlier but she's mm-hmm. writing a book that centers women the whole time, but she's never leaving out all of the other people who are affected.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And part of this, too, is that this restructuring of the feudal way of life into the capital's way of life absolutely also required colonization mm-hmm. and the colonial work machine mm-hmm. involving indigenous genocide, African slavery to fuel the processes Mm -hmm. that would reconfigure life in Europe. And of course, also devastate the lives of the indigenous folks and the Africans who were forcibly drawn into that relation Mm -hmm. into that economic system too. So, I mean, the book has a huge scope. It is really showing how all of these things are connected and interdependent. Mm -hmm. And at the same time as it is detailing in a very materialist Marxist sense the construction of this economic system and what it entailed. It's also a very humanistic book that talks about the effect on on our social lives, our relations, on our bodies. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the macrocosm and the microcosm, it's all in here.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: and this chapter, chapter two, it's basically, I mean, I was saying this to Jana before we started recording, it is like the birth of capitalism in a nutshell in chapter 1 you have the crisis of feudalism and then the beginning of some measures that were taken by the powers in order to to make something else of the situation and that's what we left off with but then at the end of chapter 2 it's fully instituted basically i mean or all of the features of capitalism are at play you know you've got merchants hoarding grain in warehouses you've got enslaved africans working on plantations you've got indentured servitude you have vagabonds uh wandering the streets you've got poor houses you you, you even have public assistance mm-hmm. for the first time like all of these components of capitalism are are born in these pages of chapter 2 are detailed and so yeah there's a lot to puzzle out here and there's a lot to linger over you know and we don't have all the time but it's definitely going to be it's going to be a rich journey um, and sometimes really hard. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. I really appreciate. It. I want to say now while we're discussing how it's hard, uh, everyone who's listening along, but I can't, I think this is really important in history. And we, we talked about that when we, in the introduction, when we first talked about why we were doing this book, but I recognize that it's not easy material to listen to. And if you're reading along, I appreciate that uh, you guys are doing that with us. And I also want to say that we get it. spending more time here than you are probably (laughs) yeah it's hard for
0: us too. Mm -hmm. um i appreciate how federici never leaves us though she never leaves us without noticing the moments of resistance that's so true and the ways of resistance that people had against every stage of this you know yeah and also that she spends time on drawing our attention to the ways of living that we had in europe for those of us of european descent not really that long ago and Mm -hmm. that are still like they're still in us Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) so onward onward into onward into chapter two so yeah I gave a little bit of a recap of what was happening in chapter one, specifically just about the feudal situation. And then we talked about the ways that people were rising up and resisting the feudal relations. Right. Because, I mean, even though there were some good things about feudalism, it was definitely exploitative. It was definitely hierarchical. Um, And people had a means with which to exert power. It's mm-hmm. part of the point of the book is that they had land. They had communal living. Uh, they had a lot going for them that they could leverage against the feudal authorities and against the church at times. And so chapter two begins with Hederici' stating that by the late Middle Ages, the feudal economy was doomed, especially after the plague and the population crisis. After the plague, the peasants could leverage so much power in that situation that the levels of exploitation became very low, Mm -hmm. and there was no going back, really, because the situation had gotten out of hand. History was moving forward, and there was no going back into feudalism.
1: We talked some last time about the different ways that people were resisting and working to destroy the feudal system, but we only touched on the fact that there was actually military resistance. But there were, in fact uprisings all over Europe during this time period leading up to where the book takes place. There were insurrections in cities among guild members. There were peasant uprisings. And I would say that like while the word uprising is used a lot to describe these, because there were some little skirmishes, there were full-on battles. And there was even what is called the Peasants' War that happened in Europe, including the territory that became... Germany and Austria and Switzerland and even parts of the Netherlands, that was a huge organized endeavor. And people partially, interestingly, under some ideas of the Protestant Reformation, uh, but also just interest in like holding the common good and having a less stratified society were resisting the taxation they were getting from all sides and were resisting just the suppression of their lives. Mm-hmm. And so the peasants uh, organized, and it, there's a pretty good footnote in this part that is about uh, a historian who thinks that we shouldn't even call it the Peasants' War because it was such a multi-branched resistance. And that right. the insurrection actually included miners and artisans and intellectuals who were theorizing the reasons for fighting. Yeah. And peasants. And so it was actually like a multilateral fight.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the Peasant War, while still refer to it as that, is because that's what it's called in 1525, was a huge endeavor and very organized. But the forces of oppression, which was the what would become the state, the bourgeoisie, uh, which is the mercantile class, and the church including many of the Protestant reformers who were interested in the power structure remaining relatively the same, just not under the Catholic Church, Mm -hmm. all worked together to suppress and fight the organized peasantry. Mm -hmm. So I think that she says that, like, at the fallout from this resistance, they they were able to defeat the peasants with hired guns and military might because they were out-resourced, you know. Yeah. I think over 100,000 people were killed in the fallout from this. And from what I understand, it was a pretty hard place to live as a peasant for quite a long time afterwards because of the retribution and revenge of the powers that be on those folks. Mm -hmm. Um, We should link to this too, though. But if you're interested in reading more about this time period and the more radical and interesting parts of the Protestant Reformation, definitely the novel uh, Q is a good place to go for that for a fictionalized version oh, of these Luther events Blissett. by Luther Blissett. Yeah. yeah, Right. Um, it's pretty fun to read, but also just like takes you through a lot of these different uprisings, including the peasants war.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so
0: yeah, that's a great recommendation.
1: Um, so I would say that is kind of where we're at as far as insurrections go. And there were a lot of different uprisings and people just like fighting in in the fields, in the streets, in the work, in the factories, mm-hmm. as they existed at that time. They would have been more like shops because they were not as industrialized yet.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: they were, were putting up a fight and saying, we're not going to live in this way anymore. Mm-hmm.
0: But it wasn't always by military might that the peasant uprisings were suppressed or just the general crisis of feudalism was dealt with. And it wasn't always by military might that these processes of primitive accumulation were carried out. In fact, the peasant uprisings only occupy a couple paragraphs in this chapter, Mm -hmm. where most of it is devoted to the other forms of primitive accumulation that allowed capitalism to be born. Mm -hmm. Because remember, primitive accumulation is the Marxist idea. Faderici is kind of folding all of these different developments and changes in the way of life into this concept called primitive accumulation which is what does the ruling ca- class need to like already have established mm-hmm. for capitalism to get going you know and marx already identified the land expropriation from the proletariat and the colonization of the americas um as moments of primitive accumulation and Federici is adding women and women's bodies into primitive accumulation and also this thing that she calls the accumulation of differences. Mm. It's an interesting way of framing that she has in this chapter mm-hmm. where she is arguing throughout the book, really, that part of the stockpile of resources that capitalism accumulated in the beginning that would be fuel to keep it going was this construction of differences and divisions within the proletariat Mm -hmm. now and this would be like gender divisions racial divisions geographical divisions um and the book kind of has moments where it talks about all of that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this chapter too
1: so as dave was saying in addition to suppressing insurrections and actually using military might to control the peasantry Uh, There was this goal of weakening the peasants by removing their land base, Mm -hmm. which supported their lives and gave them more autonomy and freedom and made them just have be less subject to the rule. One of the means of this expropriation was, we discussed a little bit last time, which was the enclosures. Before the enclosures were enacted, there was what was called the open field system, which was the communal sharing of a lot of open land. And there were a lot of benefits to the system. We went over some of them last time, but I just wanted to add that the open field system was really helpful because there was a, there would be a lot of strips of land with different crops grown. On each of them. And so that protected the people who worked the land from harvest failure because there was a wide variety grown there. Having different crops in different fields also really helped with the harvest schedule. So it lessened the workload on the workers. And then another perk of the open field system was that the peasants had to manage the land collectively. And they Had these peasant assemblies where they would make decisions around what was planted, who was going to take care of what, what was going to go there this year, what was going to lay fallow, what land needed more work in a certain way to build it up. And having these collective efforts to ensure that everybody thrived because of the shared agriculture was something that was destroyed by privatizing and enclosing all of that land. Mm -hmm. That's something that's not always easy to quantify, like, what's done to a culture when, like, one of the things you got was consensus organization from having something in common. Right. But they took that away as well.
0: Yeah, because it was an occasion for solidarity. Mm -hmm. I mean, an occasion for communalism. Right. This is, like, the opposite, almost, of the tragedy of the commons, where instead of a bunch of people fighting over a limited resource and like being at odds with each other over having to share something. It's actually a force for social bonding.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Can I just say, as long as we're talking about the commons and the enclosures again, that then just as now there were all these arguments for the enclosures, right? Because everything that's ever done to oppress people, there's intellectuals who come along and rationalize them. As something that's going to be like good in the long run, or it's good for progress or something like that, right? And last episode, we referred to this idea called the tragedy of the commons, which is the idea that left to the people to decide without authority to regulate the use of the commons, people will just degrade the commons because it's every man for himself. So that idea is specifically associated with a particular person. His name is Garrett Hardin. He was an ecologist who wrote a article in uh, the journal Science, I believe it was, called The Tragedy of the Commons, and it was published in 1968. Uh, He didn't invent the idea, but he gave like a very famous articulation of this idea in 1968 that is still referred to a lot. And since it came up last time, I started reading about it again, and I actually put a link. In the show notes of last time's episode to an article called first as tragedy, then as fascism from the baffler. And it's about the legacy of Garrett Hardin. And I didn't even realize the half, you know, for one thing, I learned that the tragedy of the commons is one of the most assigned All right. essays <laughs> still to read in college classes. Yeah. Not always because they're unanimously accepting mm-hmm. its conclusions. But it's something that's assigned constantly for discussion. And also one of the main things about that I learned about that was that Carrot Hardin was actually a nativist, a racist, and a right winger Mm -hmm. who went to right wing conferences and gave them his legitimacy as a trained ecologist, you know, for their programs against immigration Mm -hmm. and basically eugenesis programs and stuff too.
1: He was, like, the official white nationalist ecologist that you could get to come in to have, like, some, like, lefty cause actually, like, justify your right-wing racist policies.
0: Right. Right. So he didn't just stumble into coming up with this idea that happened to serve a reactionary cause. You know, he was actually, that was his politics. Right. Was the politics of reaction. And he
1: applied that to ecology.
0: And he applied that to ecology. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, if you feel like reading, it's not a long article. It's in the show notes for last time.
1: You know, and we mentioned this before, too. It was not just this field system that was being enclosed, but also... Uh, all of the non agricultural lands. So the peasants had what were con- called customary rights to hunt and fish. Mm-hmm. And they would gather firewood. Yeah, to gather firewood. Yeah. And, and so they lost that as well. And the interesting side effect of this, of the enclosures, is that a lot of village life was destroyed. Because villages were built on being able to use all of this common land. Mm-hmm. And so in certain areas, huge amounts of villages just dis- disappeared or were destroyed in rural areas throughout Europe. Um, at least I think in England alone, after the enclosures, 2000 villagers, 2000 villages were destroyed. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to say before we move on is that. If you still look up the enclosures or you, if you do any kind of research around this, you'll see a recurring idea that the open field system was not efficient and that the enclosures led to a more organized production of agricultural commodities. and Yeah, this is
0: still used it's still totally. as an argument against collective ownership and forms of cultivation that would exist under collective ownership is that yields would increase and productivity would
1: increase. Right, for sure. Yeah. But Federici... It's debatable. Eh, well, it's debatable in that Federici points out that actually, yeah, by weight, productivity probably did increase and the yields were higher. The, what's very different about that, uh, what happened under the open field system and what happened after the enclosures is that under the open field system, the fruits of that labor went somewhat to the lords and the people in charge, but it also went to the people who were working the land. Yeah. And after the enclosures, yes, there was a, a raise in production, but it was mostly exported. So instead of it even just being stored up by whoever was in charge, most of it was turned into a commodity to be sold. Right. And probably I would guess too that part of the
0: modernization, privatization, increases in productivity that are happening in the fields is over exploitation of the resource
1: mm. mm-hmm.
0: to the point that it degrades it. Right. You know,
1: because it's one, one or a few people making decisions based on productivity yield only
0: and short term profit and
1: short term profit.
0: Right. You know, so I mean, this is what we have now where farming is unsustainable. Yeah, because people just need to pay off the debt for this next year. So they need to maximize the yields and grow on every square foot and not rotate and not fallow the land and all of that. Mm-hmm. Too, you know? Right. So from many different perspectives. And then also remember that not only were the commons being enclosed, but that peasants were also were being forced off of the land that they more directly held, mm-hmm. you know, because the enclosures of the commons was one example of this broader process that Federici calls just land expropriation Mm -hmm. in general, which is the land that peasants had access to, you know, was slowly taken away from them. And that could look like not just enclosures and the enclosure acts, which was especially a British phenomenon, Mm -hmm. right? Other ways that land was expropriated would be just Increase in rents, Mm -hmm. increase in taxation, so that like people could no longer pay their rent or pay their taxes and got forced off their land. But then also with the Protestant Reformation, because a lot of peasants lived on church property. Oh, right. Right, and had their livelihoods there and had their gardens there and fields there or whatever. And then with the Protestant Reformation, there was a huge move to expropriate resources from the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And at first, the peasants were really excited about this because that land could be redistributed was the hope but then it turned out that the land was taken by rich people right and they were excluded from it or gouged high rent mm-hmm. to work on it and were impoverished in that way
1: they had less access and they did they had less
0: access the church, to church. church you know mm-hmm. so what what looked like it could be a promising development to take the land away from the church ended up it just went to rich people. And the peasants didn't get access to it. Surprise, surprise. Right. Or lost their access Mm -hmm. to it. So land expropriation took many forms. Right. You know, from just like outright war and driving people off of land to the enclosures to, you know, all, all of these different things, all with this goal of creating a landless workforce that could not provide for themselves and had to depend on capitalists for jobs.
1: Mm hmm. The wages. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's like a when she gets into more of the enclosures here, she discusses also some of the like the trickle down effects of living in a system once when the commons had been enclosed, poverty became more entrenched. A lot of young people, more well, young men specifically, would just, could just leave or might just leave because they could and they didn't have, um, there was not enough to go around. So there became sort of a breaking up of family and culture. The societies became split apart. Older women became destitute. And just like the stratification within the society of like the haves versus the have nots mm-hmm. became a lot worse. And there was more resist- resentment around that.
0: Yeah, and people would just, sure, like, people looked out for each other and help each other out, but also, as you can imagine, you know, if a family member or friend of yours lost their land or was in bad times and then you were called on, like, to bail them out or to help them out, you know, that would be a burden on you, potentially, and then this would sometimes cause just strain and resentment mm-hmm. in general within the peasantry which was like a more insidious form of division mm-hmm. where these kind of like petty divisions micro divisions within the peasantry became something that was a real impediment to solidarity and would especially show up again in the witch trials right because some of those resentments were, we're going vented escalate yeah you know, by yeah so we'll talk about that stuff later um
1: well, and also we get to see like when people began to have planted in them every person for themselves because the struggle to survive became so sort of much more Sometimes you had to make a choice. Right. You would like maybe
0: actually have to choose. Right. Between providing adequately f- for yourself and helping people.
1: Helping people out. Yeah. You know, and that is what we've seen. I think over and over again, what I've seen in this chapter is that we see the beginnings of things that are, that just like continued continue to spread and that we still see today you know i can still see that reality today if i look around
0: exactly yeah so once the peasants were driven from their land it created the conditions for the creation of a really highly exploitative capitalist work machine because there were people who couldn't provide for themselves any longer on their own. And so then were going around looking for jobs mm. uh, and would work for very little because they were desperate. And so this workforce was used to break the power of the guilds in the cities where the artisans had like worked for hundreds of years to establish themselves in a position where they had power and could negotiate for a good rate of pay. For their skills. But now, with all of these landless workers coming in, the power of the guilds could be undermined and finally broken. Mm -hmm. There's lots of examples of how this regime was constructed to maximize work and maximize exploitation. One of the details in here that rang a bell for me is how she talks about in Protestant areas, they used the idea of religious reform to eliminate holidays. Because the holidays were saints' days in the Catholic order. But they're like, we're transitioning into Protestantism. We're going to get rid of all these saints' days. But those were days when you now had to work, right? And in some places, having to work on all the saints' days doubled the amount of days that you had to work in the year.
1: Yeah.
0: Doubled. Right. You know? So, I mean, sometimes it starts to look like life under feudalism was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) in some ways you know so anyway we'll talk more about the creation of the capitalist work machine but the enclosures like were you know a huge part of what fed into its creation Um, but they didn't happen without resistance
1: Mm -hmm. yeah yes there was a lot of resistance against the enclosures and it came in a lot of different forms the way that land was enclosed during this time was the planting of these hedges. And we might have touched on this a little bit last time, but the landowners, or newly coined landowners, were, instead of, like, building fences, they would actually plant these hedges. And so they would plant thorny thorny shrubs and bushes uh, along to delineate the edges of the land. And they would plant, like, hawthorn, uh, blackthorn, which is a plum, um... But when you hear about the hedge, this like, it's interesting now because the hedge has this sort of like mystical or magical, witchy sound to it. Um, because that was the remaining wild land left once everything was turned into agriculture. <laughs> yeah. Wild-ish. Uh, wild-ish. It didn't get mowed. Because it didn't get mowed. Closed. Um, but really the hedge initially was a symbol of private property, of deprivation and of the loss of the commons. And the hedges were these thorny places, uh, thorny, shrubby lines, basically, that were planted all around.
0: And filled the with field. wildflowers and weeds yeah. and stuff like that, too. So they were anchored by these thorny plants, right. but then right. filled in all around them was all of this just like riot of wildflowers. And, right. and so a lot of medicinal herbs mm-hmm. you would find them there.
1: Right. So- but it's interesting to picture that there, so there were these thorny, hedges that were planted, and they were planted to delineate the ownership of land. Mm-hmm. So people who were fighting against the enclosures would go in and either cut those all the way back, they would level them, and they were called levelers, yeah. or they would actually dig them up. And those were called the diggers, and they, and groups arose out of those different sects yeah. of people who used those strategies. But it, like, it was very direct action, as in, like, your fence doesn't mean shit to me, I'm digging this up. And also, in some places, there were hedges, there were ditches that were dug around pieces of land. And so one of the actions people would do would be filling in the ditches. Ah, uh, the fillers. The, yeah, the fillers. They're lesser known than the other groups. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think they were also diggers. Because <laughs> you have to dig to fill. Uh, that seems like less fun of a job in some ways. Um. As we mentioned a bit last time, the enclosure acts affected women disproportionately to other folks because those women were also often people who could supplement their incomes and make the situ- the inequalities of the workforce a little bit more fair by taking from the commons. And especially if there were women, older women without families, to care for them. They especially lived off of the commonly held land. So within the resistance to the enclosures, women played a really big role. Mm-hmm. In fact, there were whole gangs of women that would go and dig up hedges together. Yeah,
0: they talk about this one force in 1607 that's led by Captain Dorsey.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's a good, She's a good name. Because uh-huh. in general... You know, I, I talked about a little bit earlier about how a lot of young men became more itinerant and would move around and leave looking for worker livelihoods because they were what, there was nothing for them where they were from. Uh, women were just less mobile. You weren't as safe traveling. You might be tied to a family or to children or people you took care of, and they couldn't become soldiers because being a soldier became an option during this time period as well. Mm-hmm. and a full-time soldier. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But women had more at stake and were lost more in this whole transition. Mm-hmm. So they were a big part of the fighting force. And what's interesting is that um, there was this idea that up until a certain point within all of this, women would not be prosecuted to the full extent men were. And so Big groups of men who were also going out to dig up the hedges would wear women's clothes. So there was this drag costumery that was part of the resistance as well, which I think is cool to learn about. One group I wanted to highlight, I mentioned already a little bit, were the diggers. And the diggers were a group who rose up from the digging of the hedges and working together. But they became a pretty organized group of resistors who were basically agrarian socialist or anarchist who mm-hmm. believed that property should be held in common, that there should not be hierarchy, and that neither church nor state should be in charge. And they wrote a good bit and discussed, uh, and, and uh, they wrote a lot about the world that they wanted to create. And so they were not just committing acts of direct action and insurrection, but they were also working towards the world that they want to live in and the diggers are a pretty inspirational example from the past and you know you probably heard about the diggers in San Francisco in the summer of love in the late 60s and who also like grew a lot of food and gave it away in Golden Gate Park and they named themselves after this group yeah of agrarian anarchists <laughs>
0: Yeah, there's a cool book uh, called The World Turned Upside Down by Christopher Hill. I think it was 1975. That is, if you're interested in these radical traditions in Great Britain, the diggers, the ranters, the levelers, especially those that emerged during the Civil War in the mid 1600s, uh, then you can read that book.
1: While we're talking about this, I just want to say one thing. And this is referring to uh, the idea of the hedge as... A sort of like magical witchy place because it was the like vestige of wilderness that was left in the like complete conversion to agrarian landscape that happened um as after capitalism was created yeah um i see a lot of folks like claiming reclaiming like the idea of a hedge witch and Mm -hmm. embracing their british isles ancestry to to get to claim back into that lineage but i just want to put a call out here for the new idea of the hedge witch which would be those witches that are digging up the hedges <laughs> who are the people who are anti-private property digging it up and who aren't going to settle for the new agrarian order anyway a little little uh, call for more radical witchcraft out there
0: <laughs> yeah i guess the hedge witch is a post-capitalist absolutely Mm -hmm. phenomenon post-capitalist but post-feudal
1: post-feudal creation you know for sure
0: yeah yeah Yeah, women had a lot to lose with the New Order and with the enclosures. Um, and uh, a lot of that also had to do with the kind of work that they were being forced into mm-hmm. was unpaid household work. Right. Was increasingly becoming the only way that they could survive. And that is something that we will talk more about as the chapter progresses. Mm-hmm. Actually, maybe we should talk about some of that right now. What this is about is that as wage labor became more and more of a thing, right, because capitalism was moving in the direction of wage labor, one of the features that was getting set up of the new system was that wage labor was for men. Mm. Remember that in feudalism, this wasn't a thing where men were the workers Mm. and women were doing something else.
1: Women got paid less than men, but they still got paid. Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. But men and women both worked in the fields Mm -hmm. when it was time to go work for the Lord to earn your keep. Men and women. Everybody went and worked. (laughs) Men could make crafts and sell it in the market. Women could make crafts and sell it in the market or sell the surplus of Mm -hmm. their garden or something in the market, you know. And when there was wage work and like in the craft guilds and stuff, definitely men had an advantaged position, like a privileged position, mm-hmm. but it was nothing nearly as extreme as what would happen here right. where the, where wage work was actually constructed for men mm-hmm. and women were excluded from the wage. Right. And so, I mean, this is another huge theme of This book actually is talking about how the exclusion of women from the wage. And so this wasn't absolute, you know, there was still work that women could do that they could earn some money, like usually housework Mm -hmm. or washing and
1: domestic servants, domestic
0: servants and that kind of thing. So not entirely excluded from the wage, but the, but the work that was supposed to be the foundation of the new industrial mm-hmm. economy as Europe was kind of industrializing in these like big production facilities for textiles and whatnot were being constructed. It was supposed to be men's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and women were not allowed those jobs and women were increasingly excluded from the guilds all of this there's more detail in the chapter about this than we can talk about here but uh but it's a really important movement a really important transition because what fell out from this is that women became much more dependent on men Mm -hmm. than they had ever been before because the man was earning the wage and then women had to attach themselves to men basically in order to be able to survive. Mm -hmm. You can see as I'm talking about this, this is the beginning of the construction of the nuclear family in the sense that would become perfected in the Victorian era, but then on into the 20th century where the man is the worker and the wife or whatever, the housewife keeps the household and is not paid for her work.
1: And it goes along all class lines, you know, for the wealthy, then the women would be in charge of all the people doing the housework, mm-hmm. but they, but it would still be uncompensated. Right. You know, Um, even if she's not doing it all, she, she has like all of, is responsible for running the staff. Right. You know? Right. Right. And this is an aspect
0: of capitalism as it's being born right now, because, or back then, because under feudalism, most production was production for use.
1: Right.
0: Right. So the clothes that's being made in the village is going to get worn in the village. Mm -hmm. You know, the food that's being grown on the fields is going to get eaten on that manor, Mm -hmm. you know, in that village is production for use. But as capitalism is being born, there's more of this idea of production for market Mm -hmm. production for as a commodity making something that's going to not stay in the community but is going to get sold and be transported someplace else Mm -hmm. and men were reserved the role of participating in that production for market Mm -hmm. to a large extent so the production for use which is like keeping a little kitchen garden if you could or making stuff to be closed for the family was devalued at that point like literally devalued like in the sense of like, it had no monetary value attached to it, you know? Uh, and so this is like a big thing that Federici is trying to describe in this book, which is that the work that was assigned to women in this period became something that they were supposed to do for free in return for them being able to be provided for by a man's wage. right? You know, and so Federici cast this as another form of accumulation Where women's unpaid labor was accumulated in this way, Mm -hmm. indirectly through the male, the exclusively male wage work. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's all a little bit technical and wonky, but hopefully that made sense because it was an important thing for me to understand Mm -hmm. in here is how like how the wage, the existence of the wage, but also the gender division within wage work both disempowered women, but also set up the conditions for this new aspect of patriarchal gender hierarchy mm-hmm. that we're still living with today.
1: Well and also they basically just created a system in which half the population were dependents and not able to fend for themselves. Right. Um Yeah. Right. Right. Which is one of the things. I mean so there was some domestic servitude Mhm- um, that was possible where you were basically at the whims of the people you worked for, but also a huge upsurge in sex work happened here, like a lot because you you wouldn't ha- as a woman have the option to be a soldier or to be a safe, even as a vagabond or beggar, right. You so sex work was the main option, so and one can assume that the money being made for that work went pretty low during this period because the market became flooded with mm-hmm. people doing that work, mm-hmm. so it was not very well compensated labor either. So I'm trying to get my head around again, like what uh post enclosure capitalist relations are being put in place and what's life look like so like wages are what is defining work now women don't have access to wages what are the other components of this part the breakdown of the guild system oh right landless formerly
0: the peasantry Uh (laughs) are becoming the landless proletariat right 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 so Mm -hmm. proletariat being that technical term from marxism no workers like Yeah. And specifically, like, the definition of a proletarian is somebody who the only thing they have of value is their labor power. Okay. Right? Because they don't have any land, they don't have any capital that they can, you know, Mm -hmm. because the definition of capital is something you can use to make money, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like if you have... If you have a weaving machine, Mm -hmm. you know, then you can use it to you can borrow money, acquire some wool and use it to weave some stuff and sell it and make some money. So you've got some capital. But Mm -hmm. the proletarians, really, the only thing that they have to sell or that they can use to make money is their bodies, their labor power. Mm -hmm. Right. And and so this is what we're talking about is the creation of the proletariat out Mm -hmm. of the, the former peasantry. You know, because peasants are land-based, proletarians are landless. You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of, all this is archetypal, but this is kind of when this is happening. And then, like, there's a bunch of economic stuff that goes on here that she talks about, you know, because she's a good Marxist. So she's, like, talking about all of these economic changes and everything. And one of them is uh, something very famous called the Price Revolution, Mm -hmm. which is basically, I mean, just to give the shortest, it basically involves this huge inflationary increase in prices throughout europe right and it's still debated what the reasons were for this but the upshot of all of this is you've got a bunch of newly expropriated workers um in a really bad position prices are going up people are desperate for work for a place to be sex work is rising vagabondage which is you know just people kind of wandering Mm -hmm. and begging sometimes you know is on the rise now europe kind of descends into the condition that i think are a lot of people's like caricature of the middle ages
1: right
0: <laughs> it's true which actually like we're we're leaving the middle ages now ah. we're entering right. the renaissance period we're in the renaissance period we're entering this new it's the transition but we're moving towards fully established capitalism and now we have That kind of Monty Python scenario of like a lot of landless, exploited, dirty, starving people and beggars who are prone to being like
1: cut down by diseases and famines. Lots of like bandits and thieves and people doing what it takes to live, you know, like it's pretty cutthroat world for sure. Yeah. And the capitalists now, we haven't even talked about the bourgeoisie
0: very much yet, but the emerging capitalist class are starting to do capitalist things, mm-hmm. you know, which is like filling a warehouse full of grain and not distributing it or selling it, even though they're starving people in the streets because you're waiting for the price to go up. Right. This is not something that happened under feudalism. Right. Because this domination of markets and food being seen as a commodity... That's just another thing that you can make a profit off of. Is that this is a new invention, and so we quickly go in the space of like a hundred years or less from a position where the proletariat—I mean, where the peasantry was really strong—and I mean, it seemed like maybe the social order was going to be overturned to people starving in the streets while grain is rotting in the warehouse because mm-hmm. the owner of it is waiting for the price to go up, right? And stuff being produced for market. And then we'll get to the colonization aspect later. But as the exploitation is happening in the colonies, the capitalists are trying to bring that into the situation. And eventually they successfully do. But right now what's happening in Europe is just widespread immiseration Mm -hmm. um, and low birth rate and a lot of infant mortality and a lot of periodic famine and plague Because the plague would still come around and hit like the literal bubonic plague, but then also other diseases. Other epidemics, yeah. Epidemics that would cut down the population. And Mm -hmm. food becomes a major obsession during this period. And when there was civil unrest, it was increasingly about hunger rather than wanting to remake the conditions of life.
1: Yeah, I actually just want to re-say that because it meant a lot to me to hear that part. And it's that before capitalism, when there were insurrections, they were about people wanting more autonomy or freedom or wanting more self-determination, uh, wanting to have more say over their lives. After capitalism, people are rioting because they're starving. <laughs> you know, that's the difference. And that's how much control the rising capitalist class had over these people, that they had them at this breaking point where they were so desperate for food that they had to accept the terms Mm -hmm. of this violent system that was being put on them. It's something that I I continue to see today. Like if we, I said this earlier, but if you keep people at survival status Mm -hmm. and barely making it, then you're not going to have a lot of people fighting back, you know, or the fight will be about less than we deserve. Yeah. We'll be fighting for yes. scraps. That's a good way to say we'll it. We'll be fighting yeah. for scraps rather than self-determination. So people were fighting back during this time period. There were tons of uprisings, like almost a thousand within a hundred years in France between um fifteen thirty and sixteen seventy. People were fighting back. But while this was kind of settling in, this like creation of the new order. The counter revolution tightened up too. So, when one form of survival would be moving from town to town and being itinerant, then there was the emergence of all these anti vagrancy laws. The state would crack down on vagrants, and you could be paraded through town, naked, and whipped for being like a a wandering person. Also, there was a pushback because there was a fear of these uprisings and a fear of organization then a lot of states and cities would ban social gatherings. They banned wakes where people drank, even for celebrating the life of someone. They would ban sporting events, Uh dances, festivals, and feasts. So a lot of the stuff that maybe people were still managing to scrape by to have a little bit of joy in their life were banned Mm -hmm. during this time period because there was such a fear... Of the arising elite of the organization of the peasants. Yeah. Or what were once the peasants that are now the proletariats, I guess.
0: Right. This is part of what Federici calls the criminalization of the working class. Right. Yeah. Right. So not only were these conditions created that drove people into this poverty and hunger and immiseration and wandering. Uh, But then the proletarians had to be, like, brought into line Mm -hmm. into a way that would be productive and benefit the ruling class. Right. Right. And so, yeah, what Janet's talking about, I mean, just the banning of congregation. (laughs) Right. I mean, that is flagrant. Anything that could serve as a point of bonding and solidarity for the working class was banned. The capitalists needed a disciplined workforce, and that was a lot of this activity. Was trying, you know, remember that, yeah, pe- people were rising up. They not only wanted something to eat, but they didn't want to participate right. in this system. People had to be forced into it. It was like they were the square pegs, and the capitalists had the round hole. It didn't fit. People don't fit <laughs> in this system, you know. We still don't fit. It's 500 years later. But back then, it was very clear. There was no disguising it. And so we see a lot of examples here in this part of diffusing social protests, and then also the institution of a bunch of different laws. Like, we keep talking about vagabonds, and then, so, like you were saying, I think vagabonds were seen as criminals, and you could be arrested as a vagabond and then put into a workhouse Mm -hmm. or a work camp to where your labor was extracted from you and you didn't have a choice about it. Mm -hmm. Right. Most of the labor in this period, even the wage labor was unfree. It was coerced Mm -hmm. wage labor. This is something that is not always talked about when we talk about the rise of capitalism, because capitalism is supposed to be based on the free worker who's free to like seek jobs and quit them when they don't want to work there anymore. Right. This is like the libertarian kind of idea of like, if you don't like your job, you can quit and find a different job, you know, but it's arguable whether that is even really true under capitalism or if that's something that capitalism aspires towards. Mm-hmm. But in the early days, it was definitely not something capitalism aspired towards. Right, People had to be forced into these jobs. Most of the workers were coerced in one way or another into working for a wage if they even did have a wage, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Well, and that extortion brings us up against the limits of capitalism, which is something you were talking about earlier before we started recording, but that interestingly, there's just this sort of paradox within capitalism that it wants as much from labor as possible without destroying labor. Yeah,
0: right. This tension where like capitalism needs to maximize exploitation. Right. But maximum exploitation literally destroys the workforce, like it burns out the workforce. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and what we see during this period too is capitalism learning that the workforce can be overexploited to the point that the capitalists actually lose in the end mm-hmm. because they lose the basis of their wealth, right? Which is people's work. You know, so it's against the capitalist interests to actually run the workforce to extermination because that's what their wealth depends on. Right. right? So. It's also in this period that we start seeing things like the first instances of public assistance, Mm -hmm. Great, where the state actually sets up structures by which people's lives are maintained, Mm -hmm. like poor houses where people could go and get a meal and get a place to stay if they were on the streets, but they'd still have to work. You know, so the state comes in and takes on this role as the entity that keeps the workforce from just descending into oblivion, you know, for the benefit of the capitalists Mm -hmm. so that they can have a workforce. And so, yeah, this is super interesting. Um, where the state finds a new role but also the state becomes much more powerful because of this and you see the creation of this new alliance mm. where the state becomes the partners with the capitalist class so that the capitalists don't have mm. to worry about maintaining the workforce at a sustainable level right the state will take over and do right. that yeah you know? so you don't have to provide a living wage because we'll create public assistance and stuff to prevent the worst from happening or to create something of a safety net for people. So the creation of, like, I wouldn't call it a welfare state at this point, you know, but some kind of assistance. Mm -hmm. You see this embryonically developing at this point as well. The state becomes very powerful because of this rule.
1: I was just going to give a contemporary example to bring this home to, like, what it looks like now. Um, You know, you have a lot of... There's a big movement for living wage going on across the country and people are fight like the fight for 15 Mm -hmm. Uh, people are fighting for living wages. And some of the corporations that are fighting that the most and trying to suppress that movement the most are places like Walmart and Walmart has built in to its system, assuming that people will be on public assistance if they work there. Like it's built in. I know people who trained Mm -hmm. at Walmart who were taught how to apply for food stamps As part of their training, (laughs) because they are planning on not paying you enough to live and knowing the government will bail them out for that. It is absolutely true that there is a partnership between the exploitation of the capitalist class and the government, which allows the corporations to thrive at the expense of the workers. So when you see people fighting against minim- the minimum wage being raised to a living level, know that it's because they are assuming that they will get their government's going to bail them out, and that's something that we don't talk about much. That welfare is actually for the corporation, yeah. you know, but the individuals are who are blamed in the uh, anti-poverty rhetoric of the right.
0: Yeah, because you shouldn't have to need it or something when really the system is designed right that way for that to be part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's here just to summarize once again, that we see the state first being charged with this task of care for the workforce, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're going to see this come up again in the very next thing.
1: Yeah. So just to add on to this idea of how, as the system was kind of like settling out and seeing how far it could actually push the working class and still function, Mm -hmm. there was a huge decline in the birth rate because people were starving. So that's back at home. Over in the colonies, there had been at first this kind of like wishful thinking hope that there was going to be an unlimited workforce there in the colonies. But as we know, disease, abuse, and resistance Mm -hmm. made it so there was a lot less of this infinite workforce. Unfortunately, because of disease on Turtle Island, up to like 95% of the population was decimated of the indigenous people here. Yeah. So there was a huge population decline and the project of kidnapping Africans to become a workforce was kind of just starting out Mm -hmm. um, and hadn't gotten going yet. So there was not this infinite workforce that they thought they were going to have in the colonies. And at the same time at home, there was a huge drop in the birth rate because people were starving and overworked and miserable. You know, people don't fuck a lot sometimes when they're feeling really bad, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um And so... And even when they do, they might not be able to carry the baby to term because... Or they don't
0: want to. Or they don't want to. Because they don't want to have another mouth to feed. Definitely. You know? Yeah.
1: yeah. And so... and But also, I think it's worth just saying that vitality was really low. So for right. even people who might live in situations or have the kind of sex that ends up with babies sometimes, they were not always even probably feel up to it, you know? Yeah. But yeah. people were starting. And so people were not having kids and suddenly...
0: And resistance to disease yes. was, I'm sure, way down. Right, because people... So, right. Because you don't survive diseases if you're not eating well mm-hmm. and your vitality
1: is low. Absolutely. Right? Right. Yeah. So people are probably dying pretty young um, as well within the working class. And so by the early 1600s, there was just a, a crisis. Like the crisis, the population crisis that had already kind of like started out. Um, that we talked about last time that happened at the plague. Actually, like there had been a rise in population in between but these exploitative practices and abuse of the workers led to a big crisis in population and or I guess I should say a crisis in labor (laughs) because there was already a crisis happening. This led to there being a huge interest of the state and the capitalist class in procreation.
0: And I just want to say for those who are keeping the timeline, the peak of the demographic and economic crisis was the 1620s and
1: 30s. (laughs) So as the state responds to this crisis in labor, where they need a lot more people to exploit, (laughs) there's less of them. Then all over Europe, there started to be laws passed that prohibited infanticide, contraception, and abortion. So again, I brought this up before, but in one of the previous episodes, but I think it's in our head that it's just built in to Christianity and Catholicism to be against contraception and abortion. But that did not actually happen until this time in European history. Mm -hmm. There was not a prohibition on birth control and abortion until now. In France, starting in 1556, every single pregnancy had to be registered And if you had a baby who died before baptism, who you had not registered, you could be put to death because it was assumed that you had tried to hide the pregnancy and then killed the infant. Legally, you had to actually register every pregnancy.
0: Yeah, this is incredibly
1: harsh. It's really harsh. Yeah. Within this time, too, I think that you were wanting to talk about this some, but that the intensive state interest in procreation led to people who were midwives coming under increased scrutiny.
0: Yeah, legislation mm-hmm. that required women in pregnancies to be like heavily surveilled and regulated, basically. Right. And I feel like I keep saying this, but this is another one of the major, major themes of the book. Mm-hmm. Right. Because capitalism needs a source of workers. You're right. And people who gestate and have babies are the source of those workers. You're right. And so these gestational workers. <laughs> Unpaid gestational workers need to be brought in line, Mm -hmm. need to be controlled. Right. Right. And it's going to come up again big time with the witch hunts.
1: I want to say this thing that I think is interesting, and it's that um we talked about in the last episode how sex work was basically decriminalized and supported, and there were also often, like, state-run brothels. Oh, yeah. Suddenly now, once... Now that women are basically being reduced to wombs, then sex work became criminalized. Not It first was restricted and then became absolutely criminal, and because you would be, I guess, in theory going against your proper role as a reproducer of labor power. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, that was not good procreative activity to be doing sex work. So even as more and more women were sort of going into this field because they didn't have a lot of options, mm-hmm. then it became illegal to do that work. Right. Suddenly. So. Yeah. That's another strange part of this time frame and that we see women being forced more and more into these like family only roles. Right. Right. You know? Yeah,
0: oh. yeah. it's an interesting development because in just a couple hundred years or less, you see this change mm-hmm. from the state running brothels. Right. So they're benefiting directly you from know? that. And yeah. so in this, but in this new context, you get the feeling that it's maybe more mm-hmm. sex workers on the street. Right. Um, and it becomes part of this like criminalization of the riffraff. Right that are people displaced right. by the enclosures. And so all of those people had to be criminalized so that they could be manipulated by the state. And controlled. And can, yeah, controlled by, by the powers.
1: Right. Um, and the control of sex work, as is often the case in cultures and continues to be today, is when sex work is criminalized and women walking around freely mm-hmm. have a hard time as well. You right. know, And we mentioned this when we were talking about vagrancy, but that... Yeah women were increasingly unsafe in this yeah. type of condition
0: you know and it feeds into this i think we'll go into this more yeah. maybe later and we already talked about it once <laughs> but it feeds into yeah the construction of the marriage relation in the modern sense mm-hmm. right at this point anyway the ruling class would prefer these women to be working for a man mm-hmm. in a household right and supplementing and supporting his ability to make commodities right. in the wage relation than out on her own mm-hmm. trying to make money on the street. Right. You know,
1: Yeah. And what you're getting at is, gonna we're going to talk in a bit more about the cottage industry, but at this point, so not only was procreation and gestation being regulated more, but just women's bodies and women's work in general were being regulated a lot more. It began to be really frowned upon for women to work outside the home at all. Mm-hmm. in any kind of form, not just sex work, but just working out in the world right. outside the home right, was not okay anymore because of what you're talking about, because your work was supposed to contribute to the man's work, which is getting paid for. Right. That was the trajectory of things.
0: Mm-hmm. Even though in this immediate crisis period, it was impossible to actually live on one wage for right. a lot of households. And so the women had to work anyway. right. But yes, what you're saying is generally true, is, and that's where things got as capitalism progressed.
1: Yeah, and I guess that one of the ways this this sort of like, I guess it's disenfranchisement, basically, laws are passed throughout England and France and Germany and maybe throughout Europe, um, just like regulating women's ability to participate in economic activity at all. In France, women could no longer conduct economics. Like there were laws wholesale around, (laughs) just like you couldn't buy and sell. Uh In Germany, after this period, widows no longer were allowed to manage their own economic affairs. They had to be appointed people to do that for them. Also in Germany, women were not allowed to live alone or to live with other women. Yeah. So this (laughs) kind of like regulation of like down to like your very everyday life. As a right. woman, which we could say had some to do with them wanting to control the uh, procreation of labor, but also widows were being people presumably who might actually also been have been post-menopausal were still under these regulations. Mm-hmm. You know, so even if your gestational work time was over, then you were still under these regulations because of the changing territory around gender. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It got it gets really, really depressing and hardcore where they're actually... T- she talks about how um, women were discouraged from like sitting on their porches or being in front of their house. And uh, women, once married, were not supposed to go see their own parents too much after that.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah. And for this to happen, part of what worked to support this was actually an attack on the character of
1: women. hmm Right? Yeah, and the way that the arts participated in this is really really disturbing i mean it's almost like you're like was there like a secret cabal where they like got all the playwrights together and the balladeers and we're like okay so the project is subjugate women mm-hmm. and insult their character on the individual and collective level mm-hmm. um which we know that there probably wasn't such a meeting so then what the heck happened you know but what she delineates here is yeah. that in this time period in the 15 and 1600s there was a just a flurry of art being created that was about women as not trustworthy, like talks too much, like insolent and Gossip. gossipy and insubordinate, scolding, oh, yeah, scolding, nagging, and and like overly sexual and yeah. a- animal like, too. You yeah, know, there's definitely like a part of that, and bestial, there. bestial. And so basically the the archetypes became like the scold the witch and the whore and that's what the what the options were for women at this point. Mm-hmm. Um I mean probably the most famous example of work from this time that did this was the, the taming of the shrew which is Shakespeare's play and which a scolding wife is like taught a pretty serious lesson mm-hmm. through humiliation and violence through the mm-hmm. story. Um, and which is a pretty popular play at the time. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the popular artwork of the time and the, in the populist narratives, the story as women as being untrustworthy and animal like, and basically evil to be controlled Mm -hmm. is what is being broadcast and ingested by everyone. And it starts to affect women as well. You know, it goes, you internalize that shit and you start to think of yourself that way as well. She talks about how at the end of the 17th century like the ideal woman was seen as passive, obedient, thrifty, a few words, always busy at work and chaste. So this is like where the ideal ideal woman gets to after a couple de- a couple centuries I guess of of humiliation and being legislated and disciplined by the state.
0: Right. Yeah, because like once women are successfully defined as demonic and needing to be controlled once that war is kind of won then yeah this weird reversal happens where you see propaganda portraying women as like naturally mm-hmm. demure and obedient and chaste
1: mm-hmm.
0: right which would be another thing that would be taken up through popular culture right. and assumed by women as something to be mm-hmm. instead of the demonic woman which was something not to be
1: mm-hmm. And also the tools of the state during this period of when the women were being disciplined in this way and confined it as a specific role and given so much less autonomy mm-hmm. were like basically like torture devices, you know, like women could be muzzled as dogs. They were if if your wife was a school, you could make her wear a cage on her head and parade her around town to teach her a lesson for being a nag. Mm-hmm. Um, sex workers were put in cages and like nearly drowned. They were treated much the way as witches, but not put underwater for as long. Yeah. at a time. And if you were seen as an adulteress, you could just be executed without trial, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, women were being violently disciplined uh, on top of all of this, like, cultural artifacts from the time that we have. Like, there is evidence of how much the everyday life of women were were regulated. Mm-hmm. Basically, like, in the nuclear family, which was, was becoming more and more the economic unit of capitalism, men were the symbol of the state within the family.
0: Yeah. You know. Right. The family was seen as a little state. Mm-hmm. Three. Where the women and children were the subjects. Mm-hmm. And the man was like...
1: The king. I mean <laughs> Or yes, the governor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. Another thing that I want to say here, and I think that maybe this is, this is a good time, is that because we're talking about, and Federici's talking about here, the molding of people's relationships mm-hmm. and their, their sexuality, their kinship and ways of relating into this template that they decided was going to be the thing that would best reproduce capitalism or Mm -hmm. create the situation that was going to make the capitalists thrive. Mm -hmm. And so part of what we see and that Federici takes pains to delineate is the construction of difference, Mm -hmm. right? Natural differences between men and women Taking what might be like a potential mm-hmm. point of division between mm-hmm. people, right, and making a true division, dividing people against each other, making their interests somewhat different, their and
1: giving uh, and giving some power over others,
0: and giving some power over others, right, which is the move that capitalism makes over and over again as a way of breaking solidarity and as a way of like micro managing uh, control, mm-hmm. dispersing control throughout the population but also what we're talking about here is the creation of a norm Mm -hmm. the creation of a cultural norm that is this heterosexual nuclear family right and this relationship between a man and a woman from a situation that was not so much like that Mm -hmm. right like i can't Emphasize that enough is the, I mean, like I've learned through my reading in this book and elsewhere that in medieval Europe, the roles were not that set. Mm -hmm. You know, the divisions were not that stark.
1: And there was family, but there was not nuclear family.
0: Yeah. And so what Federici is emphasizing here is the creation of the patriarchal male worker under capitalism and the creation of the housewife Mm -hmm. under capitalism and the forcing of people into those roles and the reduction in the like diversity of relation that had to happen but i also want to highlight something that she doesn't really go into a lot of depth in here Uh but that's that other people who would suffer from the standardization would be Queer mm-hmm. and non binary people who didn't fall neatly mm-hmm. into these gender roles at all. Right. And people who had different ways of relating, different sexualities then could fall right. neatly into this relation, those ways of life were also suppressed mm-hmm. by this new glorification right. and enforcement of this way of relating to.
1: And those bodies were extremely disciplined. Yes. By not conforming to the heteronormative nuclear family unit that was the yeah. standard being enforced here. Mm-hmm.
0: Hey, folks, this is a long chapter, so we are going to leave it here for this episode and finish up chapter two next time. We'll see you then. All right. Bye bye.